Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Let's begin this morning with a question. How good is a promise? And the answer to that question is, as good as the person making it. How good is a promise? Well, it's as good as the person making it. When I was very young, maybe five years old, my father was doing some work in the back basement of our home in Drexel Hill before we had natural gas. We had an oil-burning furnace back there. And I remember the two big black oil tanks back there. My father told me that he was going to let me paint one. But then after assessing the situation further, he decided that it wasn't really worth the effort. So he broke the news to me that my services were no longer needed. I was dejected when I heard it. And I responded with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this caused my father to repent and reassess. He reasoned that it was most important to keep his word. And so we painted. I didn't really pick up a love for painting on that day. But I've never forgotten the importance of keeping my word. And more importantly, I began to learn what we're going to see in our text today. Keeping one's word is a righteous thing. It's a righteous thing because that's how God is. And while none of us keeps our word perfectly throughout life, that's not the case with the Lord. Whatever God says, He does. Always. End of story. But also, and if I can put it this way, the Lord goes far beyond the bare minimum of keeping His word. He keeps the, the full meaning of His word. He keeps it in a way that none of us can even fully fathom. God famously and graciously formalizes His Word in covenants with His people. Even today, we're in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. A covenant is a solemn promise. And when God makes you a solemn promise, He fulfills it to the uttermost. With God, it's a solemn promise. It's a sacred promise. And all those that belong to the Lord have entered into covenant with Him. Our text is going to teach us more about how great that covenant that we have with God is. We're going to see it in the ancient Israelites in the old covenant, and we're going to know it for ourselves today in the new covenant. His covenant is a solemn promise. It's a great promise. It will never be broken, and this should be very reassuring to us Christians throughout the entire course of our lives, no matter what is happening around us. So let me make this proposal from our text to us this morning. Rejoice and re-engage, for God's covenant promise is greater. Rejoice and re-engage. I, I chose those words because I, I was kind of torn between them. I think on the one hand, we need to know that because God keeps His Word, He makes a solemn promise to us, He will never break it, we can always have joy no matter what. But also I think that maybe some of us have disengaged with His work and His calling to us. We may have become discouraged, lost some faith, backed away, sought to isolate. Don't worry, God keeps His promise. Keep re-engaging. Rejoice and re-engage for God's covenant promise is greater. Greater than what, you ask? Well, greater than anything, really. Greater than anything. Now, before we break down uh, our text into four points, let me mention that this portion we're going to cover is chock full of stories, 
Every one of these stories is fascinating and beneficial, and we're just not going to get to every one of these stories today. So please read this text on your own or with your families or both. It's God's Word. It's going to grow you and strengthen you. Our text today also differs from previous chapters that we've been through here recently. We've recently been treated to short summaries and short stories about successive kings of Judah and successive kings of Israel. But today, we have a long portion that covers really one king and a little bit beyond him. It covers Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And more specifically, this portion really covers the entire ministry of Elijah, the prophet. He just shows up on the scene and starts ministering, but it covers his ministry. So let's begin to see how God's promise is greater. First, it's greater than cultural shifts. God's covenant promises are greater than cultural shifts. We've seen some massive cultural shifts in the last few years, haven't we? Massive. The changes so fast. As Carl Truman wrote in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the idea that a woman could be trapped in a man's body, that idea that a, a woman could be trapped inside a man's body or vice versa would have been unintelligible to his grandfather. Yet here we are today where Hempfield High School hosted a drag event this past April 25th. Now think about what I just said a moment longer there. I just said drag event and high school in the same sentence. Even to us, that would have been unintelligible just a few years ago. But here is something that happened two months ago. That is a massive cultural shift. Being on the wrong side of culture doesn't really surprise us Christians. We've been continually and increasingly marginalized in the culture, I mean that in the culture, at least since the 60s. And certainly my entire life, I say that as a former um, a paper boy who would read the paper every morning, uh, as a teenager and a young adult, uh, I saw the marginalization of Christians all through my life. But the pace has accelerated in recent years, and it is head-spinning. We are not, however, the first to face this. We're not the first among God's people to face this. This has been happening since ancient times. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 and following. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 and following. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if that had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. 
So Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the Israelite kings before him. That's a strong statement. But when you realize that his father, his father, Omri, did more evil than all the kings before him, and now his son, Ahab, is worse, you begin to realize how bad things are getting, how quickly they're shifting. Part of Ahab's evil is that he marries a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, Phoenician Uh, Phoenicia is also known as Sidonia. So the Sidonians here, same thing. It's evil for him to marry her because she is utterly dedicated to idols, namely Baal and Asherah. Jezebel is going to wield enormous power through her husband. In fact, she's basically his fixer. But she's more than that. She wants to completely change Israel's religious, convictional, and cultural Uh, a society. She wants to completely change it. We learn a little bit later more about the evil and the cultural shifts going on under Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab called Obadiah. Uh, We can put this up on the screen, please. Sorry if I don't have that slide in. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So that comes a little bit later here. But what we see, what we see, remember, Ahab has a temple to Baal erected in the capital of Samaria. And now we learn that Jezebel is tracking down and killing the prophets of the Lord. She was seeking to completely overturn and erase the worship of the God of Israel. She wanted to completely wipe it out, completely wipe out that culture, completely wipe out that religion, completely wipe out their history. That is a massive cultural shift. It's even worse than what we see today. Some people may be intent on that, but Jezebel's actually doing it. But no matter, because God's covenant promises to His people are greater. Because of Ahab and Jezebel and Israel's sin, God sends a drought upon Israel. He's going to demonstrate His power over them. We're not talking about a dry summer. We're talking about years of no real rain. He sends Elijah to tell King Ahab of God's punishment. And then God sends Elijah into hiding. As part of the provision for Elijah, while he's hiding out from the murderous Jezebel, God sends him to another Sidonian woman, a Phoenician widow. Jesus would later refer to this event, how there were many widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a foreign widow to demonstrate that God wants all men to be saved. And so God sends Elijah to a Phoenician widow. And notice that this widow is from the same country as Jezebel. Now that's where the comparison ends. But so God's people are being persecuted by one Sidonian woman. But God's messenger is being provided for by another Sidonian woman. And this poor widow is down to her last morsel. And completely expects that she and her son, they're going to soon perish But Elijah goes to her, 
and she provides a meal for Elijah even though she's impoverished. And so God provides through Elijah through the widow, but then God provides for the widow and her family through Elijah. And finally, about three years after Elijah prophesied the drought, God sends him back to Ahab. And when they see each other, they trade insults. I thought you should see this. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. You see how idolatry works? You see how it works in us? Ahab really thought that the troubles of his kingdom were because of some power that Elijah had. Elijah prophesied the rain, then it disappeared. He couldn't find Elijah. And where was Elijah? And he thought that was the problem. Rather than because of his own rebellion against the Lord. How blind and how stupid. Yet that is just how we are when we blame others for our failures for our rebellion, for our sin. That's just how we are when we gloss over all of our disobedience against God and claim that our situation is caused by what someone else did to us. That's just how we are. And so there's a tip for us, right? If you want to get a beat on your own idols, you want to get an insight a view into what's going on in your own heart. Be sensitive to your temptation to put, put blame elsewhere when you should own it yourself. Elijah goes on to propose a showdown between Baal and the Lord. Ahab accepts. They go to a mountain range, the mountain range of Carmel, probably home turf for Baal worship. All the priests of Baal, hundreds of men, gather and Elijah sets the terms. Both the worshipers of Baal and Elijah will set out a sacrifice, two separate sacrifices, one for Baal, one for the Lord. They'll set out a bull, each on its own altar, but they will not light the fire. Instead, the God who sends the fire, the God who lights the fire on his own, the God who lights the fire for his own sacrifice will be demonstrated to be the true God. The offering to Baal is made first. The priests march around it. They dance and they cry out. They put themselves in demonic trances. They cut themselves. They shed their blood. They do this for many hours. They exhaust themselves. But no, fire comes out of heaven and Elijah enjoys his time mocking them. Maybe he's away on a trip. He's a god, right? Which would be ridiculous, right? Because a god would be everywhere. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's relieving himself. Elijah mocks them. Then it's Elijah's turn. He makes things more dramatic by taking the precious little water they have, pouring it over his sacrifice. This makes it impossible to light his altar by hand. But it does something else too. Baal is said to be the storm god, the bringer of rain, the very thing they lacked. They're claiming that Baal can provide. By pouring out the water they had, Elijah is saying, don't worry, the true God will accept the sacrifice, he's going to light the fire, and he's going to provide the water that we need. He will send rain. Elijah prays, 
the Lord answers. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the bull and the water. The Lord is God, plain and simple for everyone there to see. Elijah immediately becomes a real leader of the people, and he orders the prophets of Baal to be destroyed, those that led Israel into idolatry. And the Lord sends rain. You see, God's covenant promise to His people is greater than any cultural shifts. No matter who they're led by, no matter how strongly they supported, how strong the support for them seems to be, and no matter how dangerous they may seem to us, rejoice and re-engage, for God's covenant promise is greater. Second, not only is God's covenant promise greater than cultural shifts, but it's also greater than our own frailty, greater than our own frailty. Elijah was so full of faith. He was so strong. He seems unstoppable. It seems like every wrong will be righted now. He's back in charge. He's representing God. He's running with Ahab down the mountain, back to Samaria. But the mighty victory over evil rulers is short-lived. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, to get more of the story. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? We get the sense that Elijah wasn't really where he was supposed to be. God's calling him on the carpet like a parent. What are you doing here? Meaning you're supposed to be somewhere else. Apparently, Elijah was thinking about his situation in the wrong way. His thinking was wrong. His attitude was off. And you see this in the words that he says. And when he says, it is enough, when he says to the Lord, it's enough, 
He's saying, I've done all I can, Lord. I can't do any more. But like us, Elijah was not the best judge of that. If we serve at the pleasure of the Lord, then that's his call, not ours. If we're his servants, our responsibility isn't done. It's not enough until he says it's enough. And then when Elijah says there, and again in, in chapter 19, verse 4, when he says, Lord, take away my life, he's saying, I'd rather die than keep on doing this dangerous prophet thing that you've called me to, this burdensome thing. I can't make sense of it. I'm not good at it. I, I'd rather die. If this is all you have for me, then take my life. Have you ever felt that way before? Not about being a prophet, obviously. But have you felt that way? Have you felt that way about what the Lord has called you to in your life? Lord, I'd rather be doing something else. Lord, I'd rather be somewhere else. Lord, I'd rather be someone else. My wife and I have a little joke. When we watch football, I say, ah, you know, I think I should have been a quarterback instead of a pastor. Or when I watch Top Gun, I say, you know, I think I should have been a, fi a fighter pilot rather than a pastor. Or, you know, anything like that. It, you know, it's funny because it's always some glamorous thing that looks amazing, right? Everybody has their own trials. And we joke. But I think we can all be that, can't we? We look and say, ah, I think I... I think I could have done that, or I think I'd rather have done that. When God has called you right to what he's called you to, who you are, where you are, what you are, God's calling to you. He's given you responsibilities in the here and in the now. And he wants you to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to his promise to you. You be faithful to him. Elijah goes on, he says, I'm no better than my father's. I think Elijah is continuing to speak from self-pity. It's true that he is no better than his father's, but doesn't the Lord already know that? Are we better than our fathers? Are we better than our mothers? Are we better than them? No, we're not better than them. Are we better than the Israelites? Of course not, we're not better than them. Doesn't the Lord know that? Didn't the Lord know that when he called us to be his children, when he sent Jesus to die for us? Of course he knew that. Nevertheless, the Lord chose Elijah for his own purposes and has given him all he needs, and he has done the same with us too. When Elijah says, I'm the only one left, I'm the only prophet left, they're all dead, he's exaggerating. We already know that there's a hundred prophets that Obadiah has saved in two caves, 50, 50 in each cave. Now, now he himself is in a cave. And so when he says that, he's, he's exaggerating the situation. He, he looks at all, it looks so bad for him, and he feels bad for himself, and so he just keeps exaggerating that. Have you ever done that, where you exaggerate how bad something is? There's something that feels good to our flesh about self-pity. Something about complaining, about pouting, feels good to our flesh. We feel justified in our bad attitude. But, but God isn't fooled by it, and it doesn't serve us. It doesn't help us. And when we're pouting, it's time 
to repent. Self-pity is self-indulgence. Let us repent of it and put it behind us. The Lord has much for us to do. And so God speaks to Elijah, and there's a lesson for Elijah. There's a lesson for us in how he speaks. God sends a hurricane. He sends these strong winds, tornado-level winds. They tear the mountainside, and God is not in that wind, as dramatic as it is. But then God sends an earthquake after the wind, and it shakes the ground beneath Elijah's feet. Maybe he was afraid that the cave would swallow him up, but God's not in that earthquake, as dramatic as it is. Then God sends a fire. Maybe it broke forth from inside the mountain because of the winds and the earthquake. We don't know, but he sends a fire, and it must have been impressive. But God is not in the fire, as dramatic as it is. And each of these are spectacular. They're bombastic events. Each would gather a crowd. Each would become headline news in our day and time. But none of them is where God is found. No. Instead, God is speaking to Elijah in a low whisper. You see, Elijah had the category of God working in the dramatic, in the big event, like raising up a child who died or providing food for a starving woman or bringing fire down on an altar to prove that he's God. He had the category for that. We all have the category for the spectacular. But do we have the category that God is working right now in us, in the everyday, in the quiet, in the low whisper? Or do we mistakenly interpret the silence as God doing nothing. Can I propose to you that it's an insult to think or say at any moment that God is not working, that God is not bringing glory to Himself, that God is not advancing the gospel? Oh, He is working. And He is working in ways that maybe we can't see, but they're as powerful as any wind or earthquake or fire. And He's doing it right now. The only question really is, do we appreciate that he's at work? Or are we constantly looking around and striving? Where's God at work? I need to go to that place. I need to see the big dramatic thing. If it's not big and dramatic, it's, it's, it, it's nothing. That's why God's saying to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? You've misinterpreted the moment. That's why you're saying everything's done and you have no more strength. I've got more work for you to do, even though it might not seem as dramatic. There will be spectacular moments in life that we will talk about for many years to come, but don't chase them. Jesus taught his disciples that. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear about earthquakes. People will say Messiah's over here, over there. Don't chase the dramatic. God is keeping His promises to you, even in your frailty, even in your self-pity, even in your brokenness, even in your disappointment and discouragement, even when you don't see it, even when you doubt it. So don't doubt it. 
rejoice and re-engage for God's covenant promise is greater. It's greater. And third, we see here that God's covenant promise is stronger and greater than worldly rulers. It's greater than worldly rulers. After that story that's focused on Elijah, the Scriptures shift back. They turn back to Ahab and how he's doing. How do you think he's doing? He's doing poorly. He's, he, the Lord's being faithful to him. The Lord's being faithful to Israel. But Ahab's not being faithful to the Lord. And first we see that Israel's being troubled by the Syrians and their king Ben-Hadad to the north. And it's fascinating because Ben-Hadad is, seems to be looking to find a reason to destroy Israel altogether. It's kind of like the bully who's like trying to get you to fight him. And, uh, and so he demands something and you give in to him. And, and he's like, okay, but then he demands something greater and you give in to him. And he keeps demanding to see where he'll finally get the chance to, to get you to be enraged so he can, he can fight you. That's what Ben-Hadad is doing to Israel. He, he besieges Samaria, the capital of Israel. He makes demands. Ahab agrees to the terms, but then Ben-Hadad ups the ante and makes his terms even more oppressive. And so Ahab says, nope, I'm drawing the line there. God sends a prophet to him and says, good, don't worry. You're going to defeat Ben-Hadad and the, and the, the, the Syrian army that is far larger than your own, far superior force. And think of that. Ahab's not thinking about God. He doesn't inquire of God, but God sends a message to him and says, you're going to win. I'll be with you. That's how faithful God is to his covenant, to his old covenant people, and how faithful he will be to us. And so, sure enough, the Lord gives Ahab a great victory on the battlefield. But the Syrians are not so easily dissuaded, and they decide that the only reason they lost is because Israel, Israel's gods must be gods of the hills. And so they figure if we fight Israel on the plain, surely our superior forces will defeat them. And you see there again, there is a logic to idolatry. Our temptation is to look at the ancient idol worshiper and say, wow, they were so superstitious and, and, and so uh, uh, kind of dull and, and foolish, but, but we're not better than them. Our idols are more powerful in our eyes than their idols were to them. And that's why it's important that we pick apart our logic and seek to understand it. Why we put so much emphasis on the certain things we put emphasis on in life. Why we value what we value, what we live for, where we put our time, how we spend our money, we need to examine. Because there is always a logic to idolatry. It's calculating and blinding, but nevertheless, it is a logic, it is flawed, and it's fatal in the end. Now, God's going to make it clear to them that he reigns over all the earth. And so Israel defeats Ben-Hadad and the Syrians again. I wanted to read for you 1 Kings chapter 20, 29 and following, but we're going to pause there or, or we're going to skip that for the sake of time. But what you need to know is Ahab defeats the Syrians again. And this time, he has the chance to 
destroy or make a prisoner out of the king of the Syrians, Ben-Hadad. But instead, he lets him go. And when he lets him go, he lets him go because he thinks, I'm going to have a, a good relationship here. I'll, begin, I'll be able to have um, peace on that border. I'll be able to do um, uh, commerce with them. We'll be more prosperous. So it's, it's this political, military uh, shrewdness that comes to his mind rather than a heart that fears the Lord and says, what would God have? What would glorify Him? Do I give Him glory for this victory? And what brings Him honor? And you see here His worldly, foolish thinking. I think this is a good question for us today. How do you feel when you see our leaders doing foolish, worldly things? Worldliness is the idea of living life with just an eye to what's in the world and no eye to God, no acknowledgement, no point of reference to God. And when you see our leaders just operating on the level of the world, on the level of power, on the level of money, and you see them do foolish things, it's demoralizing, isn't it? It can really demoralize people. It can cause the righteous to be tormented. But don't worry. Because even then and even now, God's covenant promises to His people are greater than the foolishness of worldly leaders. The prophet comes and tells Ahab that he will lose his own life for letting the life of the enemy of God off the hook. And sure enough, that is what's going to happen. Before we move on to our fourth point, we have to take a look at one more story here. Look at 1 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 43. 1 Kings 20, verse 43, I'll read there and a little further down. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So, just to pause there, the, after the prophet told him that he would lose his life for letting the enemy of God off the hook, the king of Israel pouts and sulks. And I wanted to make sure I read that, that verse because you're going to see the, that exact same wording again here. First uh, Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel. Beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what it of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, that's Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. What a baby. What a baby, right? But come on, let's admit it. We've done that too. We've done it too when we've pouted, thrown ourselves down on our beds, 
refusing to be comforted, being vexed and sullen. Pouting, again, it's, it's, it's not a legitimate response to the answer no. It, it, it's really not okay. Even if, even if that no answer was unjust in some way or if it's wrong, pouting is, is never the answer. Turning to God in faith is always the answer. And whether that requires us to overlook something or whether it requires us to be quiet and trust Him and wait, or whether it requires us to appeal, pouting is never the answer. And it reveals from us an idolatrous heart. And rather than getting on our beds and turning away and refusing to be comforted, let's turn away from the idols. And let's turn away from the excuses And let's turn away from our sulking and our pouting. It's unbecoming of any Christian. Naboth was here righteously defending his his promised land inheritance. When the Israelites came into the promised land, God gave to each tribe and therefore each family an inheritance that they were supposed to keep in their family forever. And he was defending that righteously here. But rather than turning to the Lord in light of this good man's righteous stand, rather than Ahab looking at it and saying, you know, he's right. That's how I ought to be too. If anything, I should reward this man for standing up for the glory of God and righteousness. Rather than doing that, he listens to the false comforter, Jezebel. He listens to his wife. Jezebel does not believe that the king should be subject to the laws of God. See that concept? That no one is above the law? That's supposed to be part of Western jurisprudence? Comes to us from righteousness, from the Word of God? That no ruler is to be above the law? We're a country of laws, supposedly. Well, see, Jezebel, a, a, she's a pagan princess. She's a pagan queen. She has no regard for God and His righteousness and doesn't believe that Ahab should be subject to the law of God. She thinks the king should be able to do whatever he wants, that he's a law to himself. And so she says to Ahab, hey, don't don't worry about it, honey, I'll take care of it. And you know what he does? Like, Like so many husbands, he says, okay, and he He just turns his back and he's going to let her do whatever she wants. Even though he knows that Naboth is standing for righteousness, he's going to let Jezebel do whatever she wants. She goes out. She writes letters in his name and puts his seal on it. And those letters tell the elders of Jezreel and say, hold a fast. So a spiritual gathering. And when Naboth comes, put worthless men, it actually says worthless men. You know there are worthless men in this world. Put worthless men across from him and have them accuse Naboth, have them accuse Naboth of cursing God and king. Now, who's the real blasphemer here? Jezreel, uh, uh, Jezebel, rather. 
You know, who's full of envy and covetousness? Who's a false witness breaking the Ten Commandments? Ahab and Jezebel. What do they do? They're going to accuse Naboth of the very crimes they're committing. And it works. The elders, the elders give in. They're, they're not walking righteously before the Lord. They should stand up. They don't. They bring in two worthless fellows who accuse Naboth of cursing God and king. They drag Naboth outside the city. They stone him to death. And Ahab takes possession of the vineyard. Gets up off his couch. Oh, great. You know, problem solved. I don't know how she did it. I don't care. Plausible deniability. Goes down, takes possession of the vineyard. Guess what? God holds him accountable for what his wife did. And as bad as things are, and even though Naboth is murdered with the capricious evil through Jezebel and now Ahab, is God going to abandon his covenant promise as bad as this is, as horrible as this personal evil is that results in the murder of an apparently righteous man? No. God will intervene. He will be faithful to his covenant promises to Israel and bring revelation of his righteous word. And so all of a sudden, again, guess who reappears in the story? Elijah, the prophet. And he prophesies against Ahab. And the Lord intervenes in that prophecy. He says to Ahab, because you uh, did this, your kingdom will be torn from you. Your dynasty will end. And so now you have a couple prophecies against Ahab. He's going to die because he didn't take the life of God's enemy and his kingdom will be torn from him because of this unrighteous, capricious evil that he did against a righteous man. The Lord intervened. The Lord will always intervene. The Lord has always intervened. The Lord will intervene in our times. The Lord has intervened in our times. Rejoice and re-engage. For God's covenant promise to His people is greater. It's greater. And just to conclude this point, and to give you one aspect of the fulfillment, let me mention that Ahab goes into battle against the Syrians again. Three years of peace. He goes back into battle against them because of a border skirmish. And this time, when he goes into battle, he goes in disguised. It's a whole amazing story. He goes in disguised. And so they don't even know that he's the king of Israel. And the scripture says that an archer at random draws his bow and releases an arrow. I mean, it almost sounds like an accident. And the arrow comes and pierces Ahab between his armor. Like it just, the whole thing is so random. It's like, it, it just goes, in, it's randomly shot. They don't know he's the king. And it goes in between the, where the chinks of his armor is. Probably this side, right? And he dies in his chariot. And his blood pours into his chariot. And the chariot is brought back to, the, to, to, to Samaria. And the dogs lick his blood. Just as they licked the blood of Naboth 
outside the city. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Let's take a look at another way. His covenant promises are greater. They're greater than the generations. What would you expect from Ahab's heir? What would you expect from his heir? You would expect from his heir more evil, right? And so evil would seem to just keep going. We've already seen that. Until God disrupts it by his grace, you, you see the natural course of things as evil upon evil and upon evil. And sure enough, that's what we get. Almost, almost uninterrupted generation after generation. And looking at that, if you just look at it naturally, even for a believer, especially as we understand God's Word and the, and the, the course, the natural course of depravity, it could almost stamp out all hope in our hearts. We keep reiterating here that God's covenant promise is greater, right? Listen to God, how God deals with Ahab's son, Azariah, and how he remains faithful to his covenant promise to his people. And so you get Ahab's son. After he dies, you have Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Ahaziah falls through some lattice work. It's like falling through a ceiling. He's hurt so badly, it might even be fatal. And Ahaziah is so, that the idea of going to the Lord God of Israel is so foreign to him. He's such an idol worship. He's so oriented to Baal that he sends his messenger out to inquire of the priests of Baal what will happen to him. Will he live or will he die? And God intervenes. God interrupts. In his covenant faithfulness, he's he's saying to to all of Israel, it doesn't matter if your kings are idolatrous. I am the king over Israel. I am Israel's God. And so Elijah intercepts the messenger and says to the messenger, what is this? Isn't there a God in Israel? Why would you go to Baal? Go back and tell Ahaziah he's going to die. And so, God intervenes in that way. This is not enough for Ahaziah. And it appears that he wants to take Elijah by force and squeeze out of him what he wants to hear. And so, he sends a captain with, uh, with 50 men, 50 men, to find Elijah. And they find him on the top of a hill. And they say, come down here. The captain says, come down here. You're coming with us. We're going back to the king. He wants, he wants to meet with you. And Elijah says, well, if I'm a prophet, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it does. And that's tragic. And so the king, what's he do? Probably hears word of that. He says, that can't be possible. Sends another captain with another 50 men, and the exact same thing happens. But Ahaziah knows he's about to die. He wants to see the prophet, so he sends another captain with another 50. And this time the captain comes, he says, Elijah, I know you're a king. Please have mercy on me and the 50 men here. And so Elijah says, okay. And he goes back with him. Guess what he says to Ahaziah when he gets to him? He says nothing different. Elijah gets to Ahaziah and he says, you're going to die, you're not going to recover. 
Do you see? The generations were evil. They passed on evil from one generation to the next. It can almost seem hopeless to us. It can almost seem like it will never end, that God is so slow in keeping His promises, that He doesn't have His eye, that, that the, the natural progression of things just means that we will dwindle and always suffer. But God says, no, I'm faithful to my covenant promises. I will interrupt it. I will put a limit on evil. I will end it. It will not carry on forever. And so he brings Ahaziah's life to an end. And he only reigned two years. There will be a new dynasty for Israel. But the Lord is not simply concerned with interrupting evil from generation to generation. He is also always concerned about passing along from one generation to the next a reminder that he is faithful to his covenant promise. He wants to pass along his salvation, his righteousness from generation to generation, which is why we have children's ministry and we call it in trust because we take the gospel that we have been saved through our Lord Jesus Christ and we want to entrust it to the next generation as we talked about in our announcements earlier. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, our last passage for the day. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. We're going to stop there. But you can see that Elijah had the opportunity to pass along to Elisha 
His calling. Uh, the, 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 pro, the, the banner of prophetic calling that God's people needed to have the revelation of God in their lives so that God would continue to be faithful to them through His Word. And, and it, it's fascinating because Elijah keeps telling them to stay back, kind of like uh, uh, Naomi with Ruth. You could stay here, but Elisha says, no, I'm going with you, I'm going with you, I'm going with you. Because he has to be with them to the end so that it could be passed along to him. And Elisha was faithful. And Elijah, and he will receive that double portion. Rejoice and re-engage for God's covenant promise is greater It's greater than the generations. It's greater than the years. It's greater than time. And it's greater than all things. God will be faithful to us. I want to ask the ushers if they'd go ahead and please hand out the communion elements. As soon as you brothers are ready, please hand out those elements. We're part of the new covenant. It's new and it's better. It's the fulfillment of the old in Christ Jesus through His blood shed for us. And today, we come to His table. One of the amazing and fascinating things about the story about Elijah and then Elisha is that Elijah is very much in the image of Moses. Remember, Moses led God's people out of the land of slavery, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, to the mountain where they met with God, and then on right to the edge of the promised land. Then Joshua took them into the promised land, right? And and so through him, Israel was saved. In that way, he's a type of the ultimate Savior, the type of Christ. He's not the Christ, but he's a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. And, and the same thing you see here with Elijah. And Elijah, on that tour back, every place where Elijah and Elisha stop, when Elijah says, I have to go here, I have to go there, each of those stops is a stop at a major place in the history of Israel where God meets Israel and does something great in them, including Jericho, which was the first city that was taken by Joshua. And some of the things that are similar to Moses and Elijah is that Elijah spends 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, and and he goes to the Mount of God. That's where God spoke to him, just like Moses when he received the Ten Commandments. One of the other things that's that's similar to them is they, they both part the sea. And in both cases, they're going in an eastward direction. Moses through the Red Sea and Elijah over the Jordan River or through the Jordan River. And he goes east out through the Jordan River on dry ground, he and Elisha. There's another similarity. Moses' death is kind of mysterious. He goes up on the mountain and he's no more. Elijah Elijah is taken up by the Spirit of God and the chariots of fire. When Elisha cries out, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel 
What he's saying there is, it, that's a military picture, right? He's saying you were, the, you were the, the military leader of Israel at your time. And I see that now. And so Elijah is a type of Moses, and they're both types of Christ. They saved their people. Moses took them out of the, out of the land of slavery, and he brought them to the promised land Elijah, it was, it was a different setting. They, they had a king. They were under the rule. They were supposed to be under the rule of God. But they were far from God. And so Elijah's rulership and his work, his saving work was to remind them continually that they belonged to God, that they were in covenant with God, that they should turn to God, that they should repent of sin and turn to Him. Both of them were giants in the work of God in the Old Covenant. But we, we have the fulfillment of all that in the New Covenant. This this is why it's not a mystery as to why when Jesus was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, who is there with Him? Moses and Elijah. Types of Christ but not the Christ. There to, yes, affirm that He is the fulfillment of what they only earlier foreshadowed for us. This is why now when we come to Jesus Christ, we become part of that covenant promise. It's new, and it's better, and it's full, and it's complete. And it's every reason why, He is every reason why you and I should rejoice, re-engage in this Christian life, never give up, because God's covenant promise is greater than anything we could ever face. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.